Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Miriam Anzavin. On today's episode, we'll get to hear from Dr. Shula Mola, an Ethiopian Israeli scholar and activist. Dr. Mola is doing her postdoctoral year at the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University. Her work is focused on preserving the heritage of the Beta Israel, the Ethiopian Jewish community. Dr. Mola served as chairperson of the Association for Ethiopian Jews for 10 years and is one of the founders of the organization Mothers on Guard. Dr. Mola, thank you so much for joining me today on The Vibe of the Tribe. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. First of all, I really want to thank you for giving me this uh, opportunity to be your guest at the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. You and your family were refugees from Ethiopia. You traveled through Sudan to Israel. Could you share a bit of your story with our listeners? Yes, yes, it's a, yeah, it's a tough one, but I'm happy to do this. Yes, I didn't speak about our journey through Sudan to Israel. It was in June in 1984, I remember. There was an almost full moon giving light to the earth. Me and my younger brother, Yalo, 10 years old, I was 12 years old. We left our village, Doroha. My brother, Yalo, and me started to the journey with the family of my mother's sister, Aunt Uvijig, and Uncle Safefa. My mother was left behind because uh, her ex-husband, uh, my stepfather, didn't, didn't want her to live. But what I exactly want to tell is that my brother and me went to Sudan without my mother. But at the same time, and even though my mother is not with us, I remember the excitement to go to Jerusalem. You have to understand, Miriam, nobody knew how long take the journey. I didn't know that Sudan is far away from Jerusalem. The truth is, I believed that my mother and my baby brother Reuven would join later when we went for a month, including stops, a first longer stops, because they had to plan our work only at night so that no, no one would see us. There was a real danger if someone reported us to the authorities of Ethiopia that we were leaving Ethiopia, the result of that could be an immediate and clear prison. In those days, the law in Ethiopia was nobody leaves the country. This was a law for everyone, not just for Beta Israel, for, for Ethiopian Jews. The fear was huge. I remember the fear until today. I'm a person who likes to talk, and they told us not to talk at all. I remember silence almost completely. Not only me, everyone was silent. I tell you the truth. I also don't remember babies cried. I remember a lot of interactions among the group. I remember that in the place we stopped, we made coffee and cooked some food, at least in the beginning, there was food, but don't remember talk. I also remember that I kept imagining the destination, Jerusalem. 
And they told, not only me, but also my friends, we told stories about Jerusalem. Like we did in the village. We start telling about Jerusalem of the temple, where is everything and everybody is holy. My only concern, both in the village and on the journey, was that I, I would not be allowed to enter to the temple. I imagined the temple with an automatic gate operated by God. God is who gives a permission to people who are deserved to enter to the temple, the holy person. And I still was not that holy. I pushed and took things by force, not, not holy, for Bet Mikdash, for the holy temple. But I made a lot of improvement in my behavior during the journey. I think the imagination of the Jerusalem, the imagination of Jerusalem with the Holy Temple had a lot of impact to keep us going on the track with the difficulties. Otherwise, I can't explain a lot of things in the journey. For example, after a week or maybe two, my shoes were out of the use, and I had no others. I walked. I walked barefoot. When walking in a forest, sometimes in the dark, I remember that. The feet often bled, but still continue to walk, completely ignoring pain. I don't remember that pain. I also remember that after a while, there was no enough food. I remember it, but I don't remember hunger. My husband, Asher, he's a clinic social worker, trauma therapist, says, I suppress trauma. Maybe he's right. I remember a lot of things. I well remember the heat in the desert part of the journey. I remember the robbers. They stopped us twice and took a lot of the money and equipment we had. When we got close to the Sudanese border, two things happened. One, an old man stayed on the side of the road. Years later, I remembered him and asked about him. Yes, he stayed there. The second strong memory is a woman giving birth on the way during the journey she and her baby were immediately carried on the stretcher. When we finally reached the Sudanese border, weak and hungry, the border guards stopped us. They didn't want to let us to pass to another side, to Sudanese side. They claimed all the refugee camps are full. I felt the tension of the adults. In the end, they paid the money and the Sudanese let us pass. We crossed the border with rafts. The river was full because of the monsoon rains of summer in that area. I have vague memory of a child who fell from the raft and was swept away in the river. After moving to the side of the Sudanese, we settled on a hill close to the river. We drank the brown water from the river. We also cooked with it. 
the rice that we got from the Sudanese. Rice with nothing, no salt and no spices, but they were brown because of the river water. Many years later, I could not eat rice in Israel. After a few days in that place, we got from the Sudanese two big trucks to move us into Sudan. The destination was the city called Doka. Today I know to tell that it was after a lot of negotiations between the leaders of our group and the Sudanese, and also a lot of money paid. We got on the trucks. We were about 200 people, like in two trucks. This part is very, very traumatic for me. I remember being scared of my aunt sitting and on and on one shoulder of her stood a young man who was hanging and had nowhere to put his foot. I remember my aunt crying. I did not hear, but I did see her tears. I did nothing but cried loudly. I cried. Luckily for my aunt Uvejig, our truck suddenly stopped. We realized that it was impossible to continue to traveling to Doka because the second truck was broken. Since we did not travel a long way, we returned to the starting point for a few more days. There, my brother Yalo started to feel bad. He had fever. He had malaria. After a few days, we got guides with camels and we were told we go on foot to Doka. The Sudanese said it will take a few days. I remember we went during the day and that night with the very, very short stops. I remember being scared about my brother. I was afraid he would fail. He was very, very weak. The Sudanese told us just to walk in a line If we go out of the line, cannibals will kidnap us. I believe them. And when my brother got out of line, I immediately brought him back in the line. The guides took us to a transition refuge camps in Doka, where there was Sudanese policemen. The adult told us we should keep quiet. If they, the Sudanese, will ask where are we going to, We say we come to Sudan because the government of Ethiopia is not good and there is a civil war. The adult told us, don't say that we want to go to Jerusalem. We had really a great luck. The policemen only took the adults for questioning. In the meantime, we were given bread and water. There was immediately a rumor that the breads had a camel milk not kosher. So most people didn't eat. I heard the people talking about the Sudanese planning to take us to the desert and let us die without water and food because they don't want us. I saw the tension and tears of the adults at that night. And my uncle told us to get ready to run away. He told us, don't tell anyone. And later at night, He paid a lot of money to the gatekeeper. This uncle, I didn't tell you about him, but 
joined us on the Sudanese border. He's a man who knows a language. He knows English and Arabic. So he managed to communicate and drove us away from that place. Outside the camp, another cousin was waiting for us. This cousin had been in Sudan for a while. His name Zagga. He drove us to another city, to Tuava, to a refugee camp where our people lived. I don't remember how long we were there. From there, we secretly transferred to another city, Gadarif, because my cousin Zagga knew that the Sudanese were going to deport all the refugee camps members to another more difficult refugee camps, to Amrakuva. The rules of not talking and not telling who we are was repeated this time as well. This time, we were also told not to leave the gate at all. Only at night, we were in the place a few weeks, maybe more. Meanwhile, my brother's health got worse. He just sleeping there and did not open his eyes. My mother just cried. She was sure that he's going to die. My baby brother no longer eat too. My mother had no milk to feed him. She herself was weak. We ate mostly bananas and oranges that my cousins brought from outside and they snuck out every time. I remember that whenever my mom suggested to my brother, who was sleeping sick, to eat banana, my brother said, I just want a goat, yogurt, he said. I just want yogurt. One day, our relative, his name Genetu, came to us. He brought us food. And then my mother told him that the child, my brother, Yalo, had been asking for yogurt for a long time. And she added, I know he will be probably die, but I want him to get what he wants before he dies. At that time, many people died in Sudan. We have been told about children and adults. We know we have already died. The next day, he brought, our relative, Geneto, brought yogurt for Yalo. My brother. Till today, my mom keeps telling us that Yellow opened his eyes after eating the yogurt and started to feel better. More people started to come to see us. They all dressed like Sudanese and gave us money. And after a while, my mother was also told that she could take me and go to Jerusalem. But it was not possible to transfer to sick children. My mom refused to leave her children. In the end, thanks God, we got a chance to get certificates for all of us, including my sick brothers, to go to Jerusalem through France. I'll be brief here so that I will be possible to talk about another topic. We flew from Sudan to France and from there to Israel. I will only say that the man who received us in France named Zimna Brahane, he said on the El Al airplane, you are safe now. And there were happy voices in the, in the plane and a lot of people kissed the floor of the plane. Thank you for sharing that 
incredibly moving part of your history. I want to talk a little bit now about the struggle that your community faced. Naturally, the Beit Yisrael, which means literally House of Israel, see themselves as an integral part of the Jewish people because you are. Like so many other communities in the diaspora, the Beit Yisrael adhered to community traditions and laws and the dream that you just spoke of, of returning to Jerusalem. How did Ethiopian Jews start to immigrate to the state of Israel? And what happened when the community's self-perception and identity encountered the realities of Israeli society at that time? I mean, as you mentioned, you were going there with the belief that the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, was still there in Jerusalem. Yeah, it's it's very big gap between the dream and the, the reality that we found. And this is very painful, very painful. I can say even traumatic for us as individuals and as a community, a community that has kept the religion identity for 2,500 years, despite the difficulties sometimes that that community faced. And now, as a Jews, in danger, the better Israel identity as a people of Israel, it's difficult for, for us. And it's difficult to, to understand what's happening here, here in Israel. The all we had is just return to Jerusalem, be part, as he, te- as he told, be part of other Jews. Actually, in Ethiopia, we speak about people of Israel to be like, to return, to join to the people of Israel. Suddenly, when the state of Israel set up, the Israeli leaders from the beginning avoid us from coming to Israel. When the first Beta Israel number arrived to Israel, the react was hostility and superiority. And they looked they looked for them to deport them back to Ethiopia. They called them infiltrators. Later, late 70s and 80s, because of the strong activism of young Beta Israel members and other white Israeli and North American Jewish partners, they changed the position of the Beta Israel regarding the law of return. I have to mention that Israel did not let us come despite the decision of a Sephardic chief rabbi of Vadia Yosef who recognized the Beta Israel community as a Jews. You know, it sounds funny for me to say that, like we need that somebody should recognize us as Jews, but it's happened, yeah. We needed Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, the chief rabbi, to say that we are Jews. Still, it was hard to get to Israel, even the decision of the Rabbi Ovadia Yosef. Israel as a state had no motivation to help us to realize our dream, to return home. I just talked a lot earlier about our dangerous journey through Sudan. From my understanding, we had not have to walk to Sudan and lose thousands of our community. Israel could 
help us to come in different ways, to fly from Ethiopia to Israel, for example. Yeah, Israel could. At the same time, Israel had connection with the government of Ethiopia, with Mengistu. We know that. Today, we know that. But when we got, they, they were questioning our Jewishness too. After we go through Sudan and through different ways, difficult, a lot of difficult ways, and we get to Jerusalem, to Israel, and then they still questioning our Jewishness, our identity. They ask us converting process. There are many stories that just now being revealed about what the state of Israel and the rabbinical establishment did to the young people from Beta Israel who, when they reached to Israel. But the young people who arrived to Israel struggled a lot. They have been fighting against conversion and also fighting to open up immigration gates to Israel. The activists from our community started a big protest in the summer of 1985. Most of the community came to Jerusalem from all over the country. The protest was against the rabbinical establishment that asked from the Beta Israel community to convert. From what to what, they asked, and why, they all asked. They demonstrated for a month, 30 days of demonstration. Some of them went even on the hunger strike until the rabbis canceled the demand for full conversion and to the demand for symbolic conversion. Our big guest, guest Brahan Baruch, like our uh, spiritual uh, religious uh, leader, guest Brahan Baruch, passed away because of this demand. His heart was broken, people said. The demand for conversion was one of the first collective trauma as a community. Many members of the community who immigrated in the late 70s and early 80s were forced to convert. The anger and the pain accompanied the community till these days. When you were in Israel as a young person, you faced a number of challenges on an individual level as well, including mm -hmm. your name change, can you tell us a bit about that experience? When we came in the 80s and 90s, they even didn't ask if we want to change the name. I remember we just landed in a Ben Gurion airport and they gave us some food and, and asked for our name in Ethiopia. I remember and then that guy, he was non-Ethiopian but spoke well, Amharic, and he asked me, if I want to be Israeli, and I said, yes, sure. And then he asked if I want Israeli name. I said, yes. And he said, Shula. Your name is Shula. From I mean, in Ethiopia, I was called Nanu. And I have other names too, but I told him that I'm Nanu and said, you are Shula. Shula Mola. Yeah, also new, because in Ethiopia, you don't have a family name. I, I, I was called Nanu Tafera. Tafera is my father's name. And here, 
can they needed to organize a new family name and he said shula molla it sounds really a, a new person yeah it's a, from nanu tafara to shula molla but i tell you the truth it was fine with me because i wanted to be israeli and i was sure that this is a process that i need to do in order to be to be israeli if i mentioned that like ben gurion uh, airport i remember the shock i got there as a child i was surprised to find that the people in israel is white like they they were bright not brown like me i also was convinced that they were waiting for us people there ah waiting for us and i started smiling at everyone and they're waving for shalom to everyone and slowly slowly i realized that they were mm, waiting for others not for us and it was like I, i still i mean i still smiling because it's funny and that was a culture and, shock moment yes <laughs> that's yes. the least <laughs> the least i could yeah. say yeah i also i also was surprised to see people were dressed in a completely different way than i imagined i imagined everyone wearing some sort of a long dress covering all the parts of the body and to me it is connected to holiness and closeness to god and regarding that later i saw a lot of people acting on shabbat and the holiday but I'm good girl despite of the whole this surprising thing and weird thing doesn't bother me too much because um I found Israel attractive enough even the electric lights was very very attractive for me because I come from a village where you go sleep when the sun goes goes down and get up when the sun shines and here both at night and during the day there is a light light like 24 hours light like a place of god for me it was like exciting moment of course the question of our belonging surprised me very much it uh, it still i don't say surprising me but still hurting still hurting At that time I was sent to boarding school I studied in a religious boarding school when I got to Israel and I saw the expressions of this questioning of our identity in my daily life at the boarding school a feeling that you are not exact Jewish for example I can give the example I still remember a case where a friend objected to letting me to do a kiddush on Shabbat in her eyes i was goya not jewish because i understood it it hurt so much and every day we needed i remember in that boarding school in that religious orthodox boarding school every day we just try we try to be like them to practice 
the whole Orthodox Jewish activities like them. Even, even though a lot of times it's really weird and very, very different from our Jewish lifestyle. But I was sure, and also other friends, other Ethiopian friends, sure, that this is the only way to be here. Maybe this is the way that Elohim, that God wants us to go through, like to practice like that. Being Rabbi Moshe Klein, our rabbi of that school, he's, he knows everything. If he leads this school like that, if they if they do things like that, we have to do like them. Because we are wrong, our Kesim, our religion leaders are wrong, and the Orthodox leaders right. And we, the Ethiopian girls, Ethiopian Jewish girls, Beta Israel girls, or boys, we have to follow a new leaders and leave our leaders, leave our home, leave our heritage. And we did it for six years intensively, intensively to try just to be like them. And you can imagine what the impact of this in our soul, in our connection with my family, with our family. Every two or three weeks, I remember, I was go back to absorption center where my, my mother was living, and I start to educate her with a new style of Judaism and push and push. Sometimes she was laughing, but sometimes she was very, very sad and sometimes very angry. And she doesn't understand what's happening with her daughter, what they do, what they do with her daughter, what they tell. What's this new story of having hot food on Shabbat? I remember this story. I go back home and I say to my mother, she needs plata, she needs a kind of a, a tool to heat a food on Shabbat. And it's good in, in our religious school, right? You put this on the electricity before Shabbat and we have hot food on Shabbat. And my mother couldn't catch it. She couldn't understand it. What? What are they teaching you? But I didn't ask any questions. Everything that our Orthodox leaders said is truth, is the right way. And the only thing we need to do is to follow them and to live and to ignore ours. And I feel it. I feel it's this gap and this, this tension. Listening to you now and knowing how, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, how you are working so hard to preserve the things that you were told and encouraged to discard when you mm-hmm. got there is so is so powerful. I feel mm-hmm. I get goosebumps when I hear you talking about this because it's such a damaging idea that people who have been adhering to Judaism for thousands of years and were persecuted for it and mm-hmm. suffered for it and adhered to it because that was what they are, were then told that no. You are not really like us. Mm -hmm. And that's a horrific thing. 
And we are so much stronger as a people for the diversity of our experiences in the diaspora. But I want to pivot now to an organization that you helped to co-create. It's called Mothers on Guard. And I'd love if you could tell us a bit about why you created this organization, the importance of it, what it's trying to achieve. I have been an activist since 1994. In 1994, I joined Rabbi Micha Odenheimer, who realized that the effort of helping us, as the Ethiopian Jewish community, to immigrate to Israel was not enough. Very early, he understood that there is a lot, a lot of work to be done for the good absorption process of the community. He has a wider vision for Israel as American Jews he knew how look like racial program here in America. He founded the Israeli Association for Ethiopian Jews and myself joined the association from the beginning. I was 20, 23 years old at that time. By the way, this organization changed the name to the Association of Ethiopian Jews. Most of our work in the association was ad hoc. We advocated against discrimination. At that time, we didn't speak about racism. We didn't use the term racism at all. We also worked systematically to change a governmental policy regarding our integration process. For example, to stop to send every child, every Ethiopian child to boarding school and stop to send every Ethiopian youth to vocational track. And we asked uh, to give the chance to Bagrut diploma in order to allow them to go to university or college. Most of the advocacy work was in front of government institutions and in front of uh, philanthropic bodies and others who support the government. We tried hard for years to bring change. What has happened in the last decade is the racism of the police. The racism of the police has been exposed more and more. A turning point was the killing of the Yosef Salamsa, a young Ethiopian man sitting on a bench in a neighborhood in Benyamina. Unfortunately, at that time, there was a call to police station because of home robbery. Later, at the same day, the family saw that Yosef is not coming home. The family started searching for him and finally found him in the parking place of the police station with handcuffs on his feet and hands. The family asked the police questions and went to complain to the police investigation department, but the police in Benyamina didn't like it. So they came to the family and told them if they continue to deal with this case, they will face even harder responses from them. A few weeks later, Yosef felt a little bit better and returned to work at Benyamina Winery. One day, Yosef didn't return to work from a lunch break. After a search, they find Yosef dead. Police claimed he killed himself, but an external examination of his body's findings says he could not be 
determined that Yosef killed himself. The family turned to the attorney general to investigate the case, but the general attorney said that the police officer wrote a false report, but no punishment. The police officer remained in their role as a policeman. The case on the death of Yosef Salamsa was closed by the general attorney in 2014. On that day, the Salamsa family and activists demanding justice for Yosef organizing a demonstration. In this demonstration were my friends, including Ziva Mekonandegu. At that time, she was a, a director of Association of Ethiopian Jews. She calls me at the end of the demonstration and describes a difficult picture in which there are very few adults except the Yosef Salamsa's family and a lot of young people in the demonstration. And Ziva thought there were not young Ethiopian people, it was youth. It was like a children. And she was terrified of the cops' behavior there. And she said to me, Shula, we must do something with the parents of these children. Where are their mothers, she asked. How could mothers stay at home when the children are in such danger in front of the cops? This is why and how we set up this grassroots organization, Mothers on Guard. In the beginning, we were only Ethiopian mothers. Today, there are also mothers of Ethiopian children or other black children, or those their children are white but identify with our brown mother's pain and fear. The goal of the movement, Mothers on Guard, is to protect our children. Very simple. And avoid police violence. We protest in front of police station. We write in critical opinion pieces in the media. We also try to strengthen the spirit of the children, our children, to send them the message that we see and feel them. We stand to fight for their lives, for their well-being and safety. That's why we are organized ourselves as Mothers on Guard. In 2019, I remember there was a horrific incident in which a young Ethiopian Jewish man was killed by police, uh, a police officer in Israel. His name was Solomon Tika. May his memory be for a blessing. CJP has the Boston Haifa Connection Program initiative. And because Haifa is our sister city, mm -hmm. Solomon was known to some of our program partners there. And it was certainly a moment where people here in, in the Boston Jewish community maybe realized that incidents like that are not isolated. We know there were nationwide protests in Israel, and it was a really significant moment for the Beta Israel community. Has there been any change since then, positive or negative, out of this incident? Whew. Yes. As I have already said, we, recogni we recognize the phenomenon of police violence years before, years before Solomon Tekka killed. And six months before Solomon Tekka, Yuda Biadki, a young Ethiopian man, was killed by police. Yuda had a mental illness. On that day, Friday afternoon, he left 
the house, wearing a talit and holding sidur in one hand and a kitchen knife in the other hand. It was scary sight. The family called the Batyam police station four times and told about the case, including a description of the place where Yehuda was working. But the police didn't come. Yehuda walked about 52 minutes with a knife in his hand through the street of Batyam, and he didn't hit anyone. Finally, a policeman arrived on a motorcycle very close to Yehuda, shoots him twice in the chest and killed him. A lot of questions I raised in my mind regarding the action of the police and also the fact that the policeman was only gave a written report and was not invited for questioning. It was definitely painful. In the summer of 2019, as you said, at 11 p.m., my daughter, Noam, I remember, she called me from her room and tells me, it happened here too. What? I asked She said in English, when they see us, an American movie that we watched together, me and Noam, on Netflix a few days before, and we talked about the phenomenon. We talked a lot about the question if this kind of ugly story of racism would happen here in Israel. And despite Yuda Piadge, I convinced her, I convinced my daughter, no, no, Israel can't be like America. It's too much. And they believe it. After Solomon's case, I didn't go to work for three weeks. I felt like family member is dead. I was shocked. Solomon's murder left a hole in the hearts of the entire community as a collective and as individuals. And the public response to the community's pain and anger was even more painful. They said they lost me. They wrote many white Israeli on the social media. Have you been with us ever? I asked loudly at every opportunity I had. This was the case where many of the white Israelis really lost me, lost Shula. I was tense and angry. You know what? Still, the case of Solomon Taka is the first case to come to court, which is new, which is good. If I can say, we all happy about that. Right. I think it's a result of the community's response, the protests that have not been stopped for months, almost a year. Every evening for a half year, we demonstrated in front of the house of the country's leaders, different leaders. My partner, Asher, and me and other friends went to demonstrate in front of state attorney, Shiny Tsan House, every night, every night. The charge against the police officer who murdered Solomon was killing by negligence. It's nothing, I know, but that's something relatively to the fact that two of other cases didn't even reach to the investigation. I personally was with the family in the court every week or two until I left to Boston. 
There was long time court break, and next week on November 16, the trial will be renewed. I'm not there with Solomon's dad working and Solomon's mom with Jigtaka, but my heart is there. Now you're here in America doing your postdoctoral scholarship, and you've had this opportunity to see and make observations about what the discourse is around race and blackness and identity here in America versus how it is in Israel. What have you observed so far? You know, I, I speak a lot about the painful side of our life, um, my community's life. But I want to say something before that. Despite all the difficulties and challenges, great things are happening among our community. First of all, many young men and women are able to make significant progress despite this discrimination and racism. In recent years, there has been an increase in the social awareness of the community as a whole in general and awareness of young people in particular. There is a blossoming of diverse arts. There are community-based organizations as Mothers and God and others. There is stronger community solidarity. There is more and more mutual help and less trust system, but still working with the system carefully. Many believes, many my friends believe that it is necessary to enter to the system and change the structure from inside. We really do, they really do a great job. And there are a lot of heroes who try to do this work from inside. It's real heroism for me to survive among the institutions and to deal with racism in daily life, especially in the form of microaggression. You know, it's very difficult to deal with, but people deal with. There is also, you mentioned before, the movement, a real movement of reconnection to the community, to the culture, to the tradition and heritage. Like I like what I have been doing for the past two years. I'm researching the heritage of our community because like many others, I have realized that the power of individuals and the power of the community will be built when there is a story to tell, when there is a strong narrative. Till recently, our story written by others, by white Jewish writers, scholars. They wrote from their point of view, which is not always true, not always exact. And sometimes they wrote in paternalistic way. You can guess. Today, we want to know our history, our long-standing heritage, and want to learn for us and for our children. It's so important to do this work of celebrating and elevating these community traditions and holidays. We are having this conversation a week after mm -hmm. an Ethiopian Jewish holiday, Sigd, 
which took place this year, November 3rd through the 4th. And I would love to know a bit more about the holiday's meaning and customs and significance to the Beit Israel. Well, yes, Sigd taking place uh, 50 days from Yom Kippur. And uh, the main idea of the holiday is the renewal of the covenants between person and God, recommitment to God, uh, recommitment of person to the community, recommitment of person to the society. And the custom of Sigd is reflect this charity, togetherness. In the beginning of uh, Sigd is uh, praying and reading from the Torah, fasting and praying to, to return to Jerusalem after the half day, a little bit more than half day, around two o'clock, the transition from fasting and praying and crying and, uh, uh, and asking forgiveness from God, they, they start to happy to, to just, just singing, singing and having a meal together and asking each other about, about the life. They try to recognize who needs help, which, which village needs help, who can help. Like they, there is a big, a big connection between the communities. There is a f- four or five places. In, in Ethiopia, in different areas. It's a, like, it's a big, big gathering where people meet each other and, uh, and, and have a feeling, of, uh, a feeling of solidarity, a feeling of, yeah, we are big and we are together and we pray together to returning to Jerusalem. And we give the, the confidence to continue to fight for your identity because... Uh, historically in Ethiopia, in different period of life, there is a missionary process to push Beta Israel to become Christian. And some of them, in different period of time, converted to Christianity. So our leaders, Kesim, our, our uh, spiritual leaders, to try to give confidence for the community and to pray that one day we go back to Jerusalem is very, very meaningful and very, very central idea in our community. There was an article you wrote in which you referenced the ideas of Rabbi Sharon Shalom, who argues that Sigd is an ancient holiday that was once celebrated by all Jewish communities and was subsequently forgotten and abandoned by all of the rest of us except for the Beta Yisrael. And I love this perception because it flips on its head the idea of who is the arbiter of quote-unquote authentic Judaism. In this view, the Beta Yisrael are the real keepers of the tradition. Mm-hmm. And you yourself are a keeper of those traditions in so many ways. Please tell us more about what the official recognition of the holiday meant to the community um, in Israel and about the work you're doing right now at the Schusterman Center to preserve this heritage. Mm -hmm. Actually, the community, Ethiopian community in Israel uh, celebrated Sigd since uh, we got to Israel. But in 2008, 
uh, seek to become like a national holiday. Took time and a lot of energy till the most of the Knesset member were ready to pass that that SIGDA law uh, to give SIGDA as a national holiday. Once the law came uh, into effect, the celebration of SIGDA flowered. Like every every school, uh, every community center that uh, values of uh, multiculturalism does something. Some of the schools invite Ethiopian Israelis come to talk to talk about SIGD, and others doing even deeper thing. They study about the, the meaning of the holiday, about the, the connection between the, the meaning of holidays and the, the society, like especially the, 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 the social aspect of the, of the SIGD. For the past two years, I have been working on the development of Beta Israel Heritage Study pilot project. My project is an action result based on working together with the community to produce communities knowledge. I specifically interviewed people from a village called Nkash. I conducted the interviews of the older uh, of the older people and asked the people to invite their family members to watch the material that uh, we collected like uh, the interview I did with the uh, with the adult, with the grandfather or grandmother about their life and uh, about their perception about being a beta Israel in Israel. From this material, I try to understand the topic of oral history and also to create a methodology how to make community members researchers of their sources, their families and their story and oral history uh, of the community in, in general. The time is most important now. It's most important aspect because every day we lose our source of knowledge, our adults. Every day more and more adults pass by this world. So it's for me, like I feel it's it's very, very urgent to do this work of uh, collecting knowledge, speaking with people who carry our heritage in their mind and, and their heart. This is what I try to do. Shortly, I would say now I try to create uh, a methodology, a system, tools maybe, how to help the Ethiopian, uh, Ethiopian community, not the community, Ethiopian people who really want to learn about their heritage, about their family story, how to do this work. Not waiting for the researchers, for the doctors, but to do this now and fast. And this is what I'm doing here. And I am sure, I believe, if we have our story, will be stronger to be part of the wider society in Israel. And we can lead in the equal part of the society of Israel, not being like, not continue to being marginalized group. No, we want to be lead. We want to be a leader of the, of the, of the society.
We want to tell our story. We want to put our story, part of the other communities, other Jewish community story. Yes, we have something to tell. Yeah, we ignored. And you ask us to ignore our stories, our heritage, our, our culture. And now we, yeah, we worked up and we have to work hard to find a way because it's not easy after three decades and four decades to start to search, to try to understand who we are. We already don't know who we are. It's too long. We don't know who we are. But at least now, it's not just me. I'm glad I'm a doctor and I have the tools and the ability and opportunity to do this. But there is a lot of young Ethiopian and, and adult. The adult want to tell us. When I interviewed adults, they asked me to come again because they have much more to tell. And there is a lot of young Ethiopian, a lot of Beta Israel Israelis who wants to, to know about themselves. And a lot of people really understood the, the meaning of having the story. Dr. Shula Mola, thank you so much for joining me today on The Vibe of the Tribe. It truly was an honor to hear your story and learn more about the work that you are doing. I'm so proud that we could have you on this episode and hear directly from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here and to help me to raise my voice. It's big start. Thank you. You are so welcome. Thank you, everyone out there for listening. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to pods and follow at Jewish Boston on social media. Take care, everybody.